Hey everyone, welcome to Neighbor Science, the only podcast about political economy and anime. I'm Ryan Salisbury, and I almost forgot what the show is called for a second. Uh, this is part six, covering chapter six of Seeing Like a State. Uh, we're doing a whole series covering each chapter. If you haven't listened to the previous ones, I would recommend going back and starting from the first one. Uh, but you don't have to, I guess. Uh, I don't think it'll be that confusing. But... Uh, we have a different guest each week, and this week we have uh, my friend Walken. How you doing, Walken? I'm good, Ryan. I'm good. How are you? Uh, doing pretty good. Um, considering that I remembered that we were doing this at like 5.30. <laughs> yeah, it worked out all right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, so we're doing uh, yeah Chapter 6, uh, which is about Soviet collectivization. Like I said on the Previous chapter, I think this will be maybe the most contentious one for um, anyone who doesn't who isn't predisposed to disliking the USSR. <laughs> it's definitely the most wow you were sponsored by the CIA James Scott chapter. I think. Mm. <laughs> Do you have any thoughts on the chapter overall before we start walking? Yeah, I I mean, so you know, he references back to chapter one. With, uh, you know, he's just talking about legibility throughout um, for the state. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think this is the most, I mean, this is where we see the real violence. I think they drop in a number between three to the low end to 20 million potentially died in Soviet collectivization. So I guess as far as like drama goes, this is bringing that to a head for the book. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and um, one thing that comes from... This book being fairly old at this point was written in 1998. The USSR had collapsed less than a decade before that. That's a good point. And so some of the information uh, was pretty new that Scott was getting because you know people hadn't poured through all the internal Soviet archives at this point. So I mean, I'm not a I'm not a student of the Soviet Union by any means, so I don't know how accurate everything is. But I didn't. I didn't see anything like crazy out of place, you know. Right. I, I felt like everything that he that he puts forward, and he, you know, he mentions that explicitly that you know this is based on the information we have right now. But I felt like everything he put forward was at least reasonable. And, and um, you know, numbers aside, I think his point is made, even if uh, you know they don't have the hindsight that we have at this point. Yeah, I do think um, any any fight over the numbers is like. Kind of a red herring, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Kind of missing the point of that. Right. <laughs> um, all right. So uh, let's go ahead and get into it, I guess. So the, the first section is just called Soviet Collectivization. Um, very original title. Um, so he, this is like a, an intro to, you know, the actual um, detail on the Soviet situation. Um, Scott plans to go into detail on Soviet collectivization, but uh, before getting there, he wants to make it clear that the fervor for industrialization and Taylorism in agriculture was a global phenomenon at the turn of the 20th century and not particular to any specific ideology. And um, in case anyone has forgotten or they're coming in in the middle of the series... <laughs> Uh, Taylorism is is like a type of scientific planning of um, like large uh, groups of workers 
based on you know breaking it down into little parts of each process and finding the most efficient ways to do things and and so on. So it started in factories and it um, moved to the farm as they tried to apply industrial planning to the farm. Um, so to to demonstrate how how common it was to believe in Taylorism and industrialization in agriculture. He gives like a short overview of the interactions between U.S. agronomists and Soviet industrial planners, which were frequent and extensive. Uh, he notes that each was jealous of the other, which is kind of funny. The U.S. agronomists were jealous of the vast scope that the Soviet planners were able to operate on, um, you know, because they were operating as like a m- more integrated state versus the U.S., which is a kind of a more decentralized state. Um, while the Soviet planners were jealous of the capitalization, particularly in mechanization of the Americans. Um, and for just a side note, I wasn't totally clear on what he meant by capitalization here. Um, I think he must be referring to like factors of production and not finance. Um, because there is that overlap between like a lot of people define define capital as like machinery, basically. Um, whereas in business, capital is finance. Just like a difference in terms there, right? And and I'm glad you're kind of fleshing that out because I I wasn't sure about his use of that either. I'm not sure if it makes sense with particularly in mechanization, right? Because that makes it seem like I don't know, like capital is not just machinery, but. I'm not sure. Like, I, I don't know what other capital that Americans would have access to that the Soviets don't because the finance component of capital is like being able to mobilize workers and resources that the state money, the capital is denoted in. And a Soviet planner would have plenty of access to workers and resources. Right. So I, I guess it must be machinery. Yeah, I think you're right. So in the US, there was uh, this massive project by Thomas D. Campbell to prove the efficacy of Taylorism and industrialism applied to agriculture. And uh, Thomas Campbell on his Wikipedia page is called the world's wheat king. And the the source for that is the historical society that his grandchildren started, which I thought was pretty funny. <laughs> I wish my grandchildren would start a historical society to uh, give me a nice title. Might. <laughs> So Campbell proposed this project, first of all, to avoid serving in World War I, which, you know, smart guy. I wouldn't have wanted to serve in World War I either. And to, like, contribute to the war effort in a different way. So he received a $2 million investment from J.P. Morgan and some major USDA subsidies and a massive land endowment from the state of Montana and several um, Indian reservations. So... He got this like huge 96,000 acre plot that was a totally flat plain with no lakes or creeks or rocks or ridges. And uh, he bought, according to Scott, 33 tractors, 40 binders, 10 threshing machines, four combines, and 100 wagons. So just an absolutely gargantuan project just for growing wheat. And it turns out it's uh, only sort of successful. He did produce a lot of wheat. But when you consider like the, what is it, the per unit amount, were, were you clear on how he was defining the efficiency part, Walken? Well, I, I mean, I, 
I don't know if I'm getting the Soviet um, demonstration farm confused here, but um, I know they talked about like first year yields mm-hmm. were respectable, but I think this was all completely virgin soil too. Yes, it was. And then I think there was a dramatic drop off after that first year. Yeah, after the first year, there's a there was a major drought. Right. And he also lost his USDA subsidies. So he ended up losing $1 million of J.P. Morgan's money. Ha ha. <laughs> yeah, which is okay. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, he did, he did end up producing a lot of wheat that first year. Yeah, I mean, it says it's not more efficient than small-scale farming, but I, I don't think he really clarified, like, if he meant per, like, unit of labor or per unit of land or both or I don't know. Are you talking about the kind of the summation where he's after he talks about Campbell's death in 1966? Yes, right. Well, and I, I just again, I think with both of these projects, I, I just don't think that first year is very representative. I know he he held or kept it going until 66, but it's just a different farm. I mean, that's just how farms are. After that virgin soil year, it's just going to be a different farm, right? But so he he did say that there were other advantages that the the large farm had, uh, which um, I don't think I wrote it down, and we're going to get to those repeatedly later. So um, that that was relatively unique uh, in terms of large-scale farming in the U.S. Like, there was nothing quite on that scale anywhere else in the U.S., but there were a lot of large-scale industrial farms in terms of, like, the legal organization because I think it was supposed to be after or during the Depression there was like a lot of foreclosed farms that um, U.S. banks took possession of, right? And so they sort of like linked them together in this big like uh, I think he calls it a conveyor belt of factories, farms, essentially. And he said it was it was fairly popular to invest in these farms at the time when they were popular, but they ended up faring little better because the big groups of farms were vulnerable to high interest rates on credit. And low farm gate prices, which are, uh, that's like the market value of crops minus the cost of selling them. So if uh, if they weren't able to sell the crops for as much, it would hurt larger farms more relative to smaller farms. Hmm. Oh, we forgot to say uh, about the Campbell project. Also, Campbell had difficulty retaining workers and finding workers that were specialized enough to uh, work unattended, but not enough to like demand real money for their specialization. Right. And I mean, so do you think at that point uh, that it was already the, the Taylorism factor was coming in that, that it was, you know, labor was being so minutely broken down into, into repetitive processes. Do you, do you think that had an effect on, on labor retention? Yeah, I think, um, I think they definitely tried to do that because if I remember right, um, oh no, I'm thinking of the other, the one where the two Americans went oh. and planned the Soviet farm. But, um, but yeah, no, I do think they, they tried to apply Taylorism to this farm and it just doesn't work. Right. Because it's not a factory, <laughs> you know? It's not, you know, it, my family were farmers and it's, um, there's a lot of art, mm-hmm. there's a lot of art to it. There's a lot of like spirituality to it. And mm-hmm. if you you know, you're trying to turn a, turn a field into a factory floor. It's, uh, you're going to get the same kind of, um, alienation that, that the workers on the factory floor are going to have. And maybe even more so because they're simply not used to that kind of work. 
Yeah, and I think there's kind of like an incongruence between like, you know, if you're if you're working a, in a really scientific way in a factory, it kind of fits better because it's a factory and it's full of machines. But if you're like out in like nature, yeah, so to speak, and they're like trying to scientifically manage you, it's like, what the hell am I doing here? It's <laughs> a good point, right? You can't even you can't even like enjoy the sun. Yeah, yeah. Um, what what kind of farming does your family do? They uh, they grew mostly soybeans. It was uh, it was a farm we inherited. My great great grandfather got it um, for being a Civil War vet. Hmm. And yeah, it was it was mostly it was until my dad uh, grew up there and then um, moved to the city. So I I never I, I visited, but I didn't have much experience there. Gotcha. So the Soviets were impressed with this ninety six thousand acre farm, even though it didn't do very well, and they offered him a million acres of Soviet land. <laughs> just completely absurd number uh, to demonstrate his method there. And since they lacked heavy industry early on, they bought 27,000 American tractors by 1927. American agriculturalists also visited in 1930, and they were impressed by the scale and level of planning um, by many different scientific and engineering specialists. So not only did they have like this huge scale, but they also kind of integrated a lot of different sciences in a way that the U.S. hadn't at that point. Yeah. So Campbell did not accept the offer, but a couple of other Americans did. So in 1928, in a hotel room in Chicago, <laughs> they planned a half-million-acre Soviet wheat farm in two weeks. Right. Plenty of time to plan a giant farm, don't you think? <laughs> that you're never going to see. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> So they ended up planting 375,000 acres of wheat in Rostov-on-Don. Well done, yeah. <laughs> on a on a state-owned farm. And uh, again, it did produce a lot of wheat, um, but economically it was apparently a failure for reasons that Scott doesn't really get into. And I didn't make time to check in on that source. And I don't know how interesting it would have been anyway, but yeah. So that one was a failure, but we'll have plenty of failures ahead to talk about. So That's right. Any other thoughts on this section before we go to the next one? No, no. I, I think this lays out what's coming pretty well. I do think it's kind of interesting. They touch, he touches on it a couple of times, the aesthetic component of it. You know, I'm kind because of, I'm just trying to think like what is driving them? Um, and what, what, like you said, you know, this is cross ideological spectrums. What is this? And mm -hmm. I think just this idea of uh, the, the aesthetics of something so massive and so uniform in their minds, it was uniform. Clearly it wasn't uniform in real life. Um, I just think it's, it's pretty interesting with the, the, the mindset behind and these things. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I guess I can't understand like just thinking bigger must be better, you know, and right. Being impressed by, I mean, can you imagine a million acre farm? I definitely can't. I can't. I, I would have no idea what that would even look like. Yeah. But yeah, when they're having those numbers thrown at them, I'm not surprised. I would probably overestimate my abilities and draw up a plan in Chicago Hotel in two weeks as well. But yeah, I mean, and, and part of it's just absurd. I, I feel like I'm always surprised by how big one acre is, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I have no, I have no context for. I, I, I can't imagine what, what these sizes would even look like. I always remember, like growing up, I was in like a single family suburban house, and um, I had no idea. This was when I was really young. I had no idea like how big an acre was at all. So, 
I asked my parents, like, uh, how much land do we have? Is it like like one or two acres? And they're like, uh, no, it's like <laughs> one fifth of an acre, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, an acre's a nice little chunk of land. Yeah. Do you know if it has anything to do with like, uh, I know in Japan, the unit of measurement used for area, for like field area prior to their adaptation of the metric system was based on how much land you needed to feed one person for a whole year off of rice. Huh. Do you know if the acre is anything related to that? No, I don't know. I don't know what the, what the history. I mean, I'm, it had to be something practical, right? I mean, it had to be kind of like it talks about later in this chapter about like peasant subculture. I mean, there, there has to be a reason behind it, but, but I don't know what that is. Right. Yeah, and there was the, you know, a whole chapter almost about units of measurement being based on like like on a human scale essentially. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just looking it up real quick and okay, this says an acre was roughly the amount of land tillable by a yoke of oxen in one day. That makes sense. Yeah. That's a practical way to view it, yeah. Not a food-based measure, but definitely a farm-based measure. Mhm. Bro, bro, white the power. The next section is collectivization in Soviet Russia, and this is where he actually starts talking about um, the Soviet context uh, in detail. So first he starts talking about collectivization of peasant farms in the USSR being carried out with you know the force of the Soviet state kind of setting the stage. Like he's, he's skipping ahead a little bit, um, but he's like setting the frame for how to think about the rest of it. Mm-hmm. So he says, whereas the rural Soviets were hesitant to liquidate the kulaks, Stalin had no doubts, as we can see in this letter replying to concerns of peasant starvation. Um, Do do you want to read this? Yeah, I have it here. So, um, Stalin replied, the esteemed grain growers of your district, and then in parentheses, and not only in your district alone, carried on a, quote, Italian strike, unquote, Italia Ianca, sabotage. And were not loath to leave the workers and the Red Army without bread. The sabotage was quiet and outwardly harmless, parentheses, without bloodshed, does not change the fact that the esteemed grain growers waged what was virtually a quiet war against Soviet power, a war of starvation, my dear comrade. Shalikov. Oh, wow. I thought that was Shalikov. Oh. So I'm, I'm glad you got that. <laughs> the, the Russian names are really hard. <laughs> yeah, they are. I was like, oh, that sounds almost like chocolate. <laughs> but what a peek inside this guy's head. And I mean, that's perfect, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, he does sound like he has a real persecution complex, you know? Man, it's sad. Yeah, it's sad. Because it's like, uh, you know, the, there's like that that type of person where if even if you're doing something like completely in your own self-interest and not not thinking about them at all, they think it's like a direct attack on them, you know? Right. Yeah. It's like this this incredible egocentrism where everything that's occurring in the world is is toward or about me. And mm-hmm. and yeah, man, this this dude definitely felt like a victim. So I think that section was kind of short, but I didn't uh, take any additional notes on it anyway. So. First subhead is uh, round one, the Bolshevik state and the peasantry. Uh, so the Russian countryside after the revolution was almost completely illegible to the Bolsheviks once they took power. Uh, Lenin was pretty hostile to the peasants. 
the land decree, which gave land seized by the Bolsheviks to the peasants, was viewed by Lenin as merely a temporary concession to appease them until collectivization could be achieved. But other than this, the Bolsheviks had almost no standing in the countryside and almost no peasant members. Most people in the countryside had never even seen a communist. I love that. Yeah. And uh, the only political organization that had any purchase in the rural areas was the uh, Socialist Revolutionaries, which this is before they became the... I I had to look this up. Uh, They later split into the SR and the left SR. Right, right. Yeah. And so the the left SR was the, they supported the Bolsheviks and the right SR supported the provisional government, which was essentially like descendants of the czar, which also was the majority of the organization. Very strange stance to take, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And yeah, I don't know much about the social revolutionaries. I, I just, um, I picked up some things from Bloodstained, a hundred years of Leninist counter-revolution in their persecution, but I, I really don't know what their politics were like. And I, but I do think it's interesting that they're the only ones that had a foothold with the peasants. Yeah. I wish he kind of went into detail about that a little bit, why they had peasantry in their ranks. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's just because they put in the work to organize. I think so. That's what it sounds like. Yeah. Who, who wrote that book that you just mentioned? It is a collection of essays. I don't have it. Right next to me. Oh, okay. It's, yeah, it's at AK Press. Um, yeah, it's a few. It's a few people. Mockno, Goldman, Berkman. Oh, cool. Okay. The, it, yeah, it's it's a good book. Um, all right, so back to the text. Uh, so there were benefits to the revolution for the peasants. The wealthy landholders were forced back into the village communities, and their lands were returned to others. Oh, you know what? I think I should talk real quick about the, the Stolypin reforms. We mentioned it on chapter three, I think, but basically like in like under the Tsarist regime, uh, there was a, I think he was a minister named Stolypin and he wanted to attack the, what he thought was the roots of radicalism, ironically, because the Bolsheviks did the same thing for the opposite reason. Absolutely. And I guess the opposite tactic as well. But uh, Stolypin tried to give more land to certain peasants um, so that they would have larger farms and encourage them to basically like do capitalism. And in his mind, that would like de-radicalize them and make them, you know, more favorable to the, the czarist state. Yeah. So was he like trying to create a petty bourgeoisie? Yes, exactly. Like a, the middle class insulates the rich from the poor here. Okay. Right. That makes sense. But if you read stuff about that, it, it did not work. Like the people just got more land and they didn't become like any less radical. <laughs> so I love it. So it's, that makes it even weirder that the Bolsheviks like thought of these larger landholders as like, you know, the arch reactionaries of the country. Do you think that just goes to show how little understanding they, they had for the peasantry? I mean, I know they were all urban. Did they just not know, just not care? Yeah, I don't know because, you know, I don't know what, like, the two pieces of information are so conflicting, I don't know which one is correct, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. 
So maybe maybe they were right, but I mean, I don't know. It, it seems like there would be less of a reason to lie about the results of the Stoly pin reform than to lie about your reasons for, you know, mass murdering people or whatever. You'd think, yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. And, and you know, it's like one of those things where, like, who, who's really better to side with? <laughs> I don't know. Right. Right. So, anyway, uh, so the wealthy landholders that benefited from the Stoly pin reforms, they were forced back into village communities. And um, their lands were returned to others. The number of landless peasants was cut by half. The average peasant land holdings increased by 20% in most of the Soviet Union and by 100% in the Ukraine, which led to an average of 70 acres per household, which that to me is a lot. (laughs) Yeah, I think especially for for non-mechanized farming, yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah. What's the um, the Freedman like reparations say? Is it four or five acres in a mule? I don't remember. Oh, uh, 40, 40 acres in a mule. Yeah. Oh, it, oh, forty. Oh, okay. Wow, that's way 40, off. Forty. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was between four and five. But I, but I, that does kind of give you a sense of scale of what what you can do with with draft with draft animals. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it takes 70, 70 oxen to plow the whole thing. We just learned, you know, how that relates. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Right. So anyway, uh, collectivization was an extremely important and desirable goal for the Bolsheviks. For one, it's much easier to industrialize large-scale collective farms without needing to consider all the separate allotments for each family under the Mir system, which the Mir system is like villages had communal farms mm-hmm. that were split up into like different strips of field. Some of them like divided up the different ecological zones uh, so that each person had you know a little bit of each ecological zone in the commune area yeah I, lo- I love those maps I'm sure you went over those in the earlier chapters yeah I don't know how you how you represented them on your podcast but man those maps are fantastic yeah they're great yeah you have to look at the I think I put them in here on the uh, in the doc so if you haven't looked at it yet check the show notes and uh, hopefully I put it in there if not I'll do it later yeah so Beyond the ease of industrializing a farm without having to look at all these separate plots, um, it was also easier for city officials to collect tax on a single large farm rather than a multitude of families. And so that's uh, what I mentioned we would get into later, which, you know, in the American system, that makes larger farms like more favorable generally to the, to the state is their ease of taxation. Mm-hmm. Right, and he clarifies later that it's it's not only like the number of people that you have to talk to, but also the fact that these large farms tended to grow like you know one or a handful of crops, and so it was like a lot easier to assess their tax liabilities because you know it's just like oh this one farm produced X amount of grain and maybe like one other thing versus like smaller farms which each of them produced many different things. And so you have to like calculate those to, you know, an equivalent unit and um, add those all up and do it for each little family allotment. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know how anyone would navigate that, you know, referring back to those maps. I, I don't even know how you would try. I was reading about like the open field system in Europe. And one of the things that that struck me was 
the book that I was reading, I don't, I don't remember what it was at this point. I wish I knew, but um, they basically said that like prior to I don't know the seventeenth century, probably most most peasants would never see a tax collector in their entire life, right? Because it was just too hard to do. <laughs> I mean, it would it would be a complete waste of resources to do, try to go to send people out to track that information down. Yeah, yeah. So. Scott says the Bolsheviks used similar methods to the czars to confiscate grain from the countryside. This is early on. In 1918, there was a crisis in grain procurement that caused the Bolsheviks to authorize militias to forcibly confiscate grain from farms. Other militias were formed spontaneously by hungry townsmen uh, operating under the guise of an authorized militia, which were called otriadi. And the Bolsheviks set quotas at this time, but they were essentially meaningless. Like, it would just have been impossible to meet the quotas. I think it's funny that they even had the pretense of setting them, considering how detached they were from the peasantry anyway. How would they even How would they even guess? It's just absurd. Yeah, I think that was part of it was, um, you know, they don't even know how much grain there is. So how, right. like, what relation does it have to anything? And... Um, I didn't write this down, but I, I remember reading it and thinking that I should have, like last night. But the peasants in Russia have, and, and probably in a lot of other places, have like a long history of systematically uh, underreporting right. the amount of grain they grow and overreporting the number of family members that they have or dependents that they have mm-hmm. to the point where the Soviet like grain survey, whatever it's called, uh, like the estimates of how much grain they had available was uh, underreported by 15% through the whole country. Right. Yep. Crazy amount. And so, yeah, so these like militia confiscations were not like, you know, some orderly program of taxation. It was just like marauders going around and attacking people and taking their food, essentially. Yeah, was, I mean, it just sounds like an occupying army. I mean, especially coming from Bolsheviks, but uh, right. But even with these, with these, what I'm assuming are rural communities, just an just an absolute nightmare scenario. Yeah. So the peasants didn't quietly give up after this, and by one estimate, there were 150 distinct uprisings against this procurement scheme. Lenin said that the Green Army uprisings, including. Uh, the Tambov Rebellion, the Volga Uprising, and the many uprisings in the Ukraine were, quote, far more dangerous than all of the forces of Denikin, Yudinich, and Kolchak combined, which is referring to the, like, the whites, the the czarist forces. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I went and tracked down that quote because I tried to look for, like, what the context was and couldn't find it right away. Um, but I managed to track it down. It was in Lenin's opening address to the 10th Party Congress on uh, March 8, 1921. Hmm. That's an interesting time, too. So the 100-year anniversary of that is coming up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, so like the end of the Civil War, or nearly the end of the Civil War. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and Scott talks about that. that you know, he's, he's right. Because, I mean, the army, you know, what's the saying? The army marches on its belly or whatever. I mean... The, you know, if they cut off the supply, if they cut off the bread to the urban the urban centers, they're they're it's, they're just going to be completely locked up. Do you think that's like that quote is an exaggeration, or just like 
based on hostility to peasants or do you think it's like a somewhat accurate statement? I think it's accurate. Yeah. I really do. I mean, I, I do think Lenin clearly hated the peasants. I mean, I think he hated their backwardness. It's kind of like his mm-hmm. his view toward the lumpen proletariat. Right. You know, he just had nothing but disdain for them. But just pragmatically, I mean, coming out of a civil war, I 100% think that they, they could and did cripple him. And again, it wasn't like that Stalin quote. It wasn't that they were willfully trying to, to do that. They're just trying to survive. Just an immense amount of power giving to a non, you know, a decentralized population. Yeah, I should have copied more of the context to see like what his general attitude was about them. But like based on this quote alone, I, I think you're right. It it doesn't sound as like persecutorial. You know, it's like they're they're dangerous. They're not like, oh, they're they're attacking me, they're sabotaging me. Mm-hmm kind of thing it's just they're dangerous to you know us as a project right well and 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 like it and like you mentioned earlier you know he tried to assuage them um early on mm-hmm. and the civil war is coming to a close and he knows he's getting ready to drop the hammer on right i just it just feels like a very adversarial relationship with the bolsheviks and and the peasants yeah so Pressured by these peasant uprisings, uh, the Bolsheviks ended their unpopular war communism policies in 1921, and they then instituted the the famous NEP, which was a mixed economy policy, and um, it was primarily aimed at changing agricultural relations and was motivated by the perception that the peasantry was, as as you just said, backwards and conservative. One of the key parts of the policy was that it shifted from grain requisitions to tax liabilities that could be paid in grain. Which, again, I think is just fascinating that they they had the the arrogance to think that that that, that was a solution for them. You know? <laughs> yeah. So, as Scott says, the deaths from hunger and epidemics during the 1921 to 22 famine nearly equaled those of the Russian Civil War and World War One combined. That's unreal. Yeah, I think it was, uh, let's see, it's it's easy to look up, I know that, 1921-22 famine. Oh, the interesting thing, I, I, I did look this up earlier, one of the interesting things about it was that there was like a, a pretty large-scale relief effort from the U.S. and Europe. So they were, they were sending uh, not only grain, but also like clothing over. No, that is interesting. Post Civil War, so yeah, so the the yeah. imperialists had had just lost, huh? Five million was the was the number of people that oh. were killed in this famine. Hmm. But yeah, it was it was kind of interesting. Uh, there was someone wrote this article, I think for Jacobin. I mean, it sounds like a Jacobin article when I describe it, but uh, it was they were talking about the situation in Texas and how all these people lost their heat and how, uh, you know, uh, despite, you know, his flaws, Lenin managed to keep the heat on. But one of the major points that this article makes was during this famine, like people also didn't have fuel and like a lot of children had nothing but sackcloth to wear. So like, that's, that was the reason that 
all these uh, clothes were sent. Yeah. So I don't know how accurate it is to say that, you know, Lennon kept the heat on because he apparently didn't at this point. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm sure he did like where he cared, right? In the industrial centers. I'm sure. I'm sure he did his best there. But Oh, true. Yeah. But, uh, and maybe, you know, I'm sure those are the same people that write, write history. But, but yeah, I, 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 I don't see how a man with this kind of loathing toward the peasantry would have, well, first of all, he just couldn't, it was not, not possible for him, but mm-hmm. yeah, I just don't see the peasants as a priority for them. Right. So that was the round one section. Any, any last thoughts on that one? No, I, I mean, I think it, I think it lays the groundwork out pretty well. I mean, the, so yeah, the, Bolshevik in the in the state and peasantry. I just, I think he just sets it up as what it is as as an adversarial relationship. Yeah, and I I mean I kind of feel like um, maybe adversarial isn't always the right term, but I feel like this relationship kind of is everywhere in states. Like rural areas are basically working for the cities in like most of the world, I guess. Um, yes. Right. Right. And I think that's something that you and I agree on is that, um, you know, cities don't exist without, you know, the rural inputs. Uh, and if, if the rural areas decide they don't want to participate in that trade, they will be forced to. Yeah. You know, it's a very coercive relationship. Other than like managing industry, I guess there are some cities that do manufacturing, but I'm struggling to come up with anything that you know could you could say the city does for the for the rural areas. Yeah, I I, I don't know what that is. S- sends them a lot of prisoners, I guess, in the U.S. <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah, that's the new industry, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, other than that, machinery, um, Netflix. That's something. Yeah. (laughs) Financial services. Yeah, that's about it. Entertainment. So the next section is uh, called Round Two High Modernism. And so this starts in 1921. So Scott says, uh, starting in 1921, there had been some collectivization but despite absorbing 10% of the agricultural labor force, it was only able to produce 2.2% of farm output, um, which is pretty crazy. I, he, I don't think he says it here, but later he mentions that one of the reasons that um, the collective farms were so inefficient in terms of labor is because they were just very oppressive work environments. And so the people working there just like dragged their feet the whole time. Right. Right, yeah, I, I I know the piece you're talking about. He says, with any forced labor, <laughs> it's there's a guarantee, and that's going to be foot dragging. Yep. All right, so he skips ahead to 1924 when um, Stalin replaces Lenin, who had just died. Uh, Stalin began renewed efforts at collectivization in 1928, so skipping ahead again. Um, he stated the that the purpose of collectivization was to transfer from small backward and fragmented peasant farms to consolidated big public farms 
provided with machines equipped with the data of science and capable of producing the greatest quantity of grain for the market. He's essentially just continuing the vision from earlier where, you know, they want these large singular plots of land that can be easily industrialized and turned into, you know, grain factories uh, with Taylorism and um, industrial planning and all that. Do we know anything about, like, I haven't read any Trotsky, um, but have you have you read anything on Trotsky or, or what his thoughts were? I'm assuming that all three of them were on the same page with this. Um, yeah, like I said, I, I am by no stretch in a, you know, Soviet scholar or, I, like, I haven't read much of anything, really. I, I did one episode on the tea industry in Georgia, like during the Soviet Union, which is like my only really deep reading on the Soviet history at all. So other than that, like, yeah, all I know about Trotsky is uh, he has glasses and a mustache and uh, MLs hate him for whatever reason. And anarchists hate him for obvious reasons. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I'm I'm sure he was in line with, with, uh, with, with Lenin and Stalin. I mean, it seems like all this was laid out in the late 19 teens. I did read, I think in the footnotes or maybe on one of those, um, green army Wikipedia pages that, uh, Trotsky did do some like specifically fucked up shit to the army. Um, like I think he started forced conscription or something like that, but I don't, I don't remember exactly what it was. So when he was like building the red army. Yes. Yeah. I actually watched, a, a Russian, the docu what it was, it was docudrama um about Trotsky it, it was it was okay okay it was from Russia though yeah yeah oh okay cool yeah so I, I don't really know much about him unfortunately but uh okay so yeah back to the book section the collectivization that began in 1928 was immediately resisted by the peasants due to the unfavorable terms compared to the market price that they could get for their produce. The state was only offering 20% of that price for its mandated deliveries. Uh, so the response by the state was to use police enforcement. Um, Scott says that anyone who refused to deliver on grain procurements or generally opposed collectivization was labeled a kulak. Um, which for those who don't know, it means tight fisted and, you know, is a class based category is supposed to be the petty bourgeois, um, mainly centered in Ukraine, which makes some amount of sense since, as we said earlier, like the peasant land holdings went up by a hundred percent in Ukraine compared to only 20% elsewhere. But so, uh, kulaks were arrested and scheduled to be deported or executed. Their assets were seized and sold, and their land was resettled. And to give the appearance of this being a bottom-up initiative, the people that were in charge of these procurements were told to arrange meetings of peasants. So he didn't give any detail like what these meetings were supposed to be, which I, I'm guessing means that the only thing that was important was the appearance of a meeting, you know? Hmm. Um, and so in response to the heavy resistance to procurements, Stalin began total, uh, in parentheses, Sploshnaya collectivization in 1929. 
I don't really know what the benefit is of putting that one singular term in there. That's weird. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, oh, Sploshnaya collectivization. Okay. <laughs> now I got it. Yeah. I was, I was confused, you know, differentiating it from the other types of total collectivization. Right. Um, so Scott notes that while scholars of this era don't agree on much, they almost universally agree that the purpose of collectivization was to ensure reliable grain procurement. Um, so even if they said it was for ideological reasons or whatever, the, the main reason was so that they could get a reliable income of grain to feed the cities and industrialize the country. Right. And to me, that's the big takeaway of this whole, whole chapter is what you just said. Mm -hmm. I mean, it really is about following that, that Marxist formula that they thought had to be followed. Um, the peasants were just kind of thrown in as something they had to deal with, but it was really about that industrial going through those stages that they thought they needed to go through. Right. Uh, so the, the peasants of the time also thought that the purpose of collectivization was for reliable grain procurement. And that led them to resist collectivization. Uh, Maurice Hindus, who is a Russian American Soviet scholar. And, uh, I, I just have a note here about him. Um, if, if anyone's skeptical of Hindus, I, I looked him up specifically because of this quote. Um, his father was supposedly a Kulak according to the Wikipedia article on him. Uh, but to me, that doesn't make sense because he died in 1905, which was before the Stolypin reform. Oh, um, yeah. And then the rest of his family moved to Stuyvesant, New York City, um, after he died. Um, but he he also wrote for a mainly American slash European audience, which can indicate an anti-communist bias. But he was criticized by other contemporary Soviet experts for romanticizing or being naive of the actual conditions in 20s and 30s Russia. So kind of a kind of a centrist on Russia. <laughs> Seems like a reasonable criticism. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but so what he wrote was all but the young folks were afraid of collectivization, even the Bedniaks, which is poor peasants. In spite of all the promises made to them, it would involve giving up one's land and implements and working with other families under orders, not temporarily as in the army, but forever. It means barracks for life. There's a period I missed in there, but that's okay. Yeah. So... I mean, uh, what did you think of the pictures? This is kind of skipping ahead a little bit, but what, what, what did you think of those pictures of the Kolkaz? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's fascinating. It does look kind of barracks-y to me. It does. It, it's, it's, you know, it's kind of that brutalist, you know, it's, <laughs> there's not, there's not much going on there. You know, it looks sterile. Yeah. I mean, if it looked like a, like a long house or something, that would be one thing, but it's just kind of a like an apartment, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it does look like a military barracks. And, and I mean, I don't, I think we'll get to this in a second, but basically like the farmers would go from working for themselves and, you know, selling, uh, selling the crops they don't use for themselves on the market to working for a uh, wage, which kind of sucks in comparison, you know? Yeah, and again, just a totally radical change in, in what they've known and how they've lived their lives. 
yeah, pretty understandable to be afraid. Yeah. This is the next section, and it's called uh, Authoritarian High Modernist Theory and the Practice of Serfdom. So Scott says the officials who were attempting to carry total collectivization forward had a very specific vision of what collectivized farms should look like. And uh, as we said several times now, Grain Factory is the, the kernel of that vision. They believed that they understood how to structure and operate farms better than the peasants themselves, who, again, they viewed as backwards. And they desired extremely large, heavily mechanized, hierarchically run, Taylorist farms. So Scott notes that before the colossal failures of the colossal farms, Stalin himself envisioned collective farms on the scale of 125 to 250,000 acres. I, I love that. Yeah. Love that. Absurd number. I, I have a, a really hard time thinking Stal that Stalin would know what that looks like either. I, I think he thinks that's a big number. You know, let's, let's, <laughs> let's go for that. Yeah, that's true. And the thing that keeps running through my head is, and it's been a while since I've read it, but it's about like, terracing and in Japan and Korea and China and how they mm -hmm. and soil fertility and how everything's very small, but, but it works, you know, and this is just like the exact opposite. And it's, it's like our agriculture here with our, with, with our incredible amount of inputs that we have, but yeah, yeah, it's just all big, you know, it's big numbers, big everything in not having that understanding of, of what it takes to actually grow food. Yeah, I think uh, I think this bit is coming up, but like the main reason that any of this succeeded at all was, like you said, it was the inputs, not the scale. They basically used intensive agriculture techniques, uh, like the U.S. did, and uh, we're still doing that, and that's you know causing rapid topsoil depletion. Mm -hmm. Right. But that's that's basically the reason that food production has gone up so significantly over the last like two hundred. 250 years and we did a specific episode about the early stages of intensive agriculture which was powered by seabird shit guano oh right yeah so like uh european settlers captured these islands off of the coast of uh i think it was off the coast of chile and um they had been guarded for you know centuries and like rationed out but they took all these like basically fossil resources, like millions of years worth of, of bird shit and um, used like a huge amount of it in, in a very short amount of time. Basically until they came up with the Haber-Bosch process to create nitrogen from air. Yeah, it's, it's sad, man. Yep, yep. Okay, so yeah, back to the book. The farm level plans uh, were equally unmoored from reality. I think this paragraph is worth quoting in its entirety. Uh, do you want to read this or do you want me to? Which one are you looking at? The Utopian? Yes. Yeah, okay. I'll read it. The Utopian ab abstraction of the vision was matched on the ground by wildly unrealistic planning. Given a map and a few assumptions about scale and mechanization, a specialist could devise a plan with little reference to local knowledge and conditions. A visiting agricultural official wrote back to Moscow from the Urals in March 1930, to complain that, quote, on the instruction of the Rayon Executive Committee. I think it's Rayon, yeah. Yeah. Uh, 12 agronomists have been sitting for 20 days 
composing an operational production plan for the non-existent Rayon commune without ever leaving their offices or going out into the field, unquote. <laughs> when another bureaucratic monstrosity, the uh, Veliki Luki in the West proved unwieldy, the planners simply reduced the scale without sa- sacrificing abstraction. They divided the 80,000 hectare scheme into 32 equal squares of 2,500 hectares each and one square consisting of the Col- uh, uh I actually went and like played the pronunciation. It's, it's just Kolkaz. Kolkaz. Very it's easy. Much yeah. easier than you think. <laughs> yeah. Consisting of the Kolkaz. Uh, quote, the squares were drawn on a map without any reference to actual villages, settlements, rivers, hills, swamps, or other demographic or top- topological characteristics of the land. Unquote. I, I love that quote about the the agronomist sitting the in their office. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's complaining that they haven't even left. They haven't left in two weeks. Yeah, I mean that's got to be even more common now. Weeks. You know, everyone sure. everyone works in an office now. They're either office or retail. Those two. <laughs> hey, well, at least they would have like Google Maps to get like a an image in their mind of what yeah, they were. That's true. Of what they were dealing with these. I mean, this is just. Again, it's just like total disdain, but I mean, they're bureaucrats, right? So, and I guess the other, another trend is like, uh, some of those large farms use like LIDAR and GPS to map, to map the fields. Yeah, absolutely. I think most tractors today are actually driven by GPS. Yeah, that's wild. And, and the weird thing is I've read that that's supposed to make them more accurate, but like, Usually GPS is not that accurate. <laughs> like the most accurate is like a nine meter range or something like that. Or maybe it's three. It could be but a nightmare still. on the farm. Yeah. Like how many Going times have you creek. been driving with your, your GPS and like it thinks you're on the service road next to you, you know? That's true. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. But I think they, they actually like make the turns for, I, I don't That's crazy. <laughs> It's very different than, than when grandpa was on the farm. Yeah. They must have the good GPS or something. I don't know. They could, yeah. So Scott says the greatest advantage of collectivization from the central planner standpoint was the ability to control how much of each crop would be sown. Uh, of course, those planners knew little, if anything, about agriculture, so their demands were not based on what was possible or reasonable with actually existing farms. Alexander Yakovlev, who was head of the agriculture department of the Central Committee, said that the collective farms should be managed by, quote, permanent cadres who genuinely knew their fields, as in not by out-of-touch bureaucrats who knew nothing about the fields. Another quote that I like there, the subtle sarcasm there. Yeah, and they knew. I mean, they knew. Yeah. They knew this was a problem. Uh, So... Criticism of the state was apparently encouraged in 1936 to catch out wreckers that needed to be purged. Dude, that's brutal. Yeah. So they got some complaints documented about the collective farms from this time. And uh, I'll just quote directly here. One Kolkaz was instructed to plow meadows and open land without which they could not have fed their livestock. Another received sowing orders 
that doubled the previous acreage allotted for hayfields by taking in private plots and quicksands. (laughs) (laughs) Go hit the quicksand, buddy. It'd be like, oh man, our uh, our crops are getting shorter. I can't figure out why. <laughs> <laughs> I love that the that the critics were called wreckers. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so continuing in the next paragraph is a uh, retrospective on their practices. So Scott says, the planners clearly favored monoculture and a far-reaching, strict division of labor. Entire regions and certainly individual kolkazi were increasingly specialized producing only, say, wheat, livestock, cotton, or potatoes. In the case of livestock production, one kolkaz would produce fodder for beef cattle or hogs, while another would raise and breed them. The logic behind kolkaz and regional specialization was roughly comparable to the logic behind functionally specific urban zones. Specialization reduced the number of variables that agronomists had to consider. It also increased the administrative routinization of work, and hence the power and knowledge of central officials. Yeah. That bit about like the separation between producing fodder for livestock and growing the livestock themselves is just like a completely insane problem that is basically everywhere now. Yeah, I, I agree. I was thinking the same thing. I was thinking about how in China there are cities that are like bed cities or, you know, they, they do that one they're they're so hyper specialized. They only produce one thing. Someone in Anarch's Discord was talking about uh, like raising livestock and um, how it's really you know ecologically destructive. Mm-hmm. But like this separation between the production of fodder and the production of livestock is like the main reason that that's the case. Because right, um, you know the the fodder is. Nowadays, it's grain, so they'll grow like uh, corn, like marginal corn or uh, some other type of grain, and they'll do it with intensive agriculture, the you know topsoil depleting method of agriculture, and then they have these uh, what are called concentrated animal feeding operations, CAFOs, yep. that are just packed to the gills with beef or chickens or pigs, and um, you know they ship in the the grain to feed the livestock and you know the livestock piss and shit and they they just have like these huge like lakes and rivers of you know cow and pig shit coming from the CAFOs and that's that's like the main like destructive part of of that um as well as the you know the fodder right have have you ever been by one of those one of those uh concentration camps for cows i have not no have you uh yeah i i used to drive my grandparents they used to winter in arizona and i would drive drive them out there and uh going through i think it was texas west texas we'd drive by them it's really almost impossible to believe what you're seeing and smelling it's just a nightmare on earth they're really bad yeah i always figured that you know, I've I've asked myself a couple of times if I've ever seen one of those, but I, I figured that the smell would give it away pretty obviously. So Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so uh continuing, Scott details how planners would come up with a series of quotas, which the Kolkazi would almost immediately appeal to have lowered, particularly because they knew that if they met the quotas, the quotas would be raised next season. Which uh, I think 
I think everyone who's worked a regular job has experienced that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, I'm looking, I think, at the same paragraph where he says, quota, meeting a quota might mean starvation. Yeah. Yeah, that adds another level to it because, you know, for a lot of other jobs, it's like, oh, you set the precedent for, you know, how fast you could work. So now they're going to expect you to do that all the time. Mm -hmm. But then, yeah, this also has the factor of the thing that they're producing is also the thing that they need to survive. Right. So the peasants uh, viewed the changes introduced through collectivization as a revocation of the rights they had won over the last 70 years. So since 1860, they, I put joked, but I, I think it was, you know, semi joke, semi completely serious um, that the all union communist parties abbreviation VKP stood for Vitoroe Kreposnoe Pravo or a second serfdom. And if I didn't pronounce that right, uh, fuck you. <laughs> I don't know Russian. <laughs> uh, yeah. but, but the joke was based on their actual view of the situation. And this is Scott. The Kolkaz members were required to work on the state's land at least half time for wages in cash or in kind that were derisory. Um, and I had to look that up. That means very small. They depended largely on their own small private plots to grow the food they needed other than grain although they had little free time to cultivate their gardens. The quantity to be delivered and the price paid for Kolkaz produce was set by the state. The Kolkazniki owed annual corvée labor dues for road work and cartage. And if it's not clear, Kolkazniki is like the people that worked on the Kolkaz. And actually, I don't think I looked up what cartage is. Let me see that real quick. The transporting of something in a cart or other vehicle. So transportation. Um, so they had to... Um, Corvée is like uh, like peasant gang labor, basically. They are you know, conscripted to do work for the state. That was a, an arrangement in medieval France and other places, I'm sure. But uh, back to the passage. They were obliged to hand over quotas of milk, meat, eggs, and so on from their private plots. The collective's officials, like feudal masters, were wont to use Kolkha's labor for their private sidelines and had in practice, if not in law, the arbitrary power to insult, beat, or deport the peasants. As they were under serfdom, they were legally immobilized. An internal passport system was reintroduced to clear the cities of undesirable and unproductive residents and to make sure that the peasantry did not flee. Laws were passed to deprive the peasantry of the firearms they used for hunting. Finally, the Kolkosniki living outside the village nucleus uh, in parentheses, Kutor dwellers, often on their old farmsteads, were forcibly relocated beginning in 1939. This last resettlement affected more than half a million peasants. The resulting labor rules, property regime, and settlement pattern did in fact resemble a cross between plantation or estate agriculture on one hand and feudal servitude on the other. That was a very dense passage there. Yeah, yeah, what? Well, I mean, this is where that second serfdom really, it really hits. It's it's incredible. One thing that I thought was a little silly was the arbitrary power to insult. Yeah. <laughs> like. Yeah. How how do you how can you prevent them from insulting you? You know, that's just uh, that's just a boss. Right. <laughs> Some sacrosanct thing that they had previously. Yeah. <laughs> they just walk off if they get called a name. <laughs> Um, one thing that this made me think of though, was, uh, 
that with that internal passport system. Mm-hmm. You know, we obviously have that internationally, and it just makes me think like, if there's any like international arrangement that would sound oppressive nationally, then shouldn't it be thought of as oppressive internationally as well? You know, it's a really good point, and and that was kind of a shocking thing for me to read. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I never thought of an internal passport system. I guess that's what the whole papers please thing is really right. Yeah, I mean that's what popped in my popped in my head is is Nazi Germany. Yeah, because they they do that in Gaza too, right? Mm, I'm sure they. I'm. I think they have to have documentation to go through certain places. I'm sure. I'm sure they have to. Yeah. I, I didn't notice the um, firearm thing the first time I read it. Yeah, I did. But I mean, and I'm thinking about like how important that would be. And I was also thinking about like <laughs> running through my head, like, what are they going to do? Are they going to like, are they going to learn how to like tiller bows and like start bow hunting again? I yeah. Mean, that's a, and, and, and the, the tiny amount of meat that they would have had available, I'm sure that any like any poor rural people like the poor rural people that i know they all hunt and mm-hmm. it's not for fun it's right. they they need the meat you know it's really important yeah um the episode i just recorded and released yesterday uh was talking about the um antebellum and postbellum south and how um a lot of slaves, especially the ones that were um, under the task system, uh, in their free time, they were avid fishers and trappers. And, um, you know, that would was not only a pastime for them, but also, you know, supplemented their, their diet quite a bit. Yeah, absolutely. I, I was even like Malcolm X's autobiography. He talks about um, picking up rabbits, you know, as a, as a kid. I mean, that's... Hmm. If you're anywhere close, I mean, it's just food. I mean, it's just how they look at food. Right. And it's, it's super important. I'm surprised I haven't heard this, the depriving them of their firearms thing from, you know, two a guys. Cause I was talking about how yeah. the Nazis did that to the Jews, but you'd think that this would be right up their alley. Cause it's not only, you know, oppressive confiscation of firearms, but it's communists. Oh God. <laughs> Right. And and the thing about this is like, you don't even have to draw, um, you don't even have, cause I feel like there's a few steps that those two, a guys have to have to make, you know, you know, my, you know, I have free speech because I have this right to bear arms and, you know, it's a slippery slope and all this shit. Mm-hmm. But if you look at this, this is like, this is like from like pulling this gun out of my closet to having food for my children tonight. Right. I mean, it, it doesn't take a massive amount of imagination to make this point. Maybe that's the thing that, that stops them, though. They can't relate to... It could be. You know, not being poor. <laughs> they, it could very well be. Yeah. yeah. I mean, guns are not cheap. Right. True. Oh, the the part about them, you know, having quotas for their private plots, that's, that's pretty crazy, because, I mean, how is that a private plot if you have to give all this shit from it away <laughs> right and I, and I just think about like more like more man hours that have to be spent to like check in on that mm-hmm. it's just it's just bureaucracy just grows and grows well really 
specifically cover this, so I'll, I'll just talk about it now. I, I think it's really interesting that like a huge part of this project was uh, basically proletarianizing yes. everyone in the country or everyone that they could anyway. I mean, like you'd think that as Marxists, the whole thing would be like, we want to get rid of the wage system. That's the thing that's oppressive. That's what Marx talked about the whole time in you know in capital and his other writings but they like fought very hard to make sure that everyone worked for wages instead i mean yeah and i've thought about that too um but do you think that that's kind of that stages yeah thing that like yeah definitely yeah because really until now n- nobody cuz my understanding i don't know a ton about mao but mao kind of inverted it from you know you have to have this proletarian situation and um, you know, the peasants were an afterthought or just a cog in the machine to, to, and then Mao kind of flipped that on its head. Um, I guess it was just like being a dogmatic Marxist, I guess. Yeah. I mean, uh, through all the quotes from this chapter and that I've seen in other places, it definitely seems like their idea was we need everyone to be proletarians because that's how you industrialize mm-hmm. which i guess isn't isn't wrong but the whole thing was we need to industrialize because that's how you achieve communism not like communism is a set of social relations right it's specifically like i mean uh i, I think lenin specifically said like communism is uh soviet power plus electrification of the countryside <laughs> right which actually, the main reason I remember that is because that was it. That was the beginning of that article that I was talking about from Jacobin. Really, <laughs> he like qu- quoted Lenin about that. Yeah, I was like, oh yeah, that. When I read that, I thought that was good. <laughs> I thought that was a really that's, smart thing to say. <laughs> that's that's interesting because you know I I can't remember where it is in this book, but Lenin gets into that. Yeah. Yeah, he definitely. Uh, Scott definitely quotes that earlier. Yeah. 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 Okay, that was earlier. I guess part of my problem is that, and part of it's coming on the heels of of reading that Bloodstained book that I was telling you about, is mm-hmm. like how many of these ideas and arguments from the Bolsheviks were made in good faith? And maybe it doesn't matter, but I just, I just feel like it was such so much bullshit. You know, I don't, I don't even know if they believed, yeah, believed these things. You know, I, I don't know. I guess it's pretty simple. Like uh, I can look at it as if they truly were acting in good faith, or in, and then they're not. But um, and I'll tell you as I go back through this because I read this before I read Bloodstain. As I go back through this, um, that is like at the front of my head is like the Stalin quote and it's just all of this shit. Man, did these people even believe this? Yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't even know which one would be worse. You know. If it would be yeah. worse if they did or if they didn't, right, right. That's a, it's a great point. I'm kind of leaning towards it would be worse if they did actually believe it because that would mean like, you know, the the people that are in like our contemporary communist movements would also fall for the same shit. And I guess you know they do because we can see them doing that all the time online. <laughs> yep. I, I think you're right. I think you're right. I think if you could chalk it up to individual failure, you know, or psychopathology of the three individuals or whatever it is, <laughs> it would 
it'd be a lot more palatable than yeah. saying no. There's a, like a huge underlying problem with this whole this whole idea. Right. Okay. So uh, let's get back to the book. So the transformation of the mirror into the coal cause uh, was not simply the addition of administration onto the existing commune. The physical and geographic geographical space was completely rebuilt uh, to destroy any remnants of the old order. So buildings in the village centers were pushed to the periphery and replaced with apartments, uh, which this is where that, that picture we were talking about earlier is. Mm-hmm. The village centers were replaced with apartments, administration, and trade centers, schools, and state-run community centers. The intent was to eliminate the, quote, quasi-autonomous petite bourgeoisie of the countryside and replace them with obedient Kolkaz employees. So that proletarianization that we were just talking about. Mm-hmm. The administration and industrialization also factored into this plan. Rather than the farms deciding what to grow, that decision would be made centrally by the state. Rather than muscle power taking care of farm labor, it would be oil power from tractors and combines provided by the state. Rather than traditional farming methods, the farms would be run intensively using fertilizer and seed provided by the state. And rather than the opaque, variegated sprawl of farms with unique cultural practices and histories, the Kolkazi were an orderly grid of homogeneous, homologous units that were legible and accountable to the state. Oh, I thought this was interesting. Scott compares the Kolkaz to McDonald's. Yes. In that modular. It's an array of modular, similarly designed mm-hmm. units producing uniform commodities using a single formula, a single work routine, a standard set of equipment, and inputs from the central administrator. And each unit can be easily spun up and once established can be inspected by a bureaucrats from the central administrator using a single checklist to enforce regulations. I think that helps me imagine what the the collective farms were like better than some of the descriptions thus far. That makes sense. I mean, that's we we know that. Yeah, we've all seen a McDonald's, you know. Right. And if you've seen one, you've seen them all. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Except for well, there's there's a couple that are a little different. I I remember uh, there's one in Baltimore that I went to when I went to an Orioles game when I was like 12, that uh, it was two stories and it had uh, a couple of TVs with N64s hooked up to them, Oh, which was crazy. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, why can't we have this everywhere? Why can't every McDonald's be like this? <laughs> yeah, they should have. I can't imagine like how greasy and disgusting those controllers were. Yeah, but probably still better than the nasty poo-filled ball pit, you know? Dude, my my kids are not allowed those those things. <laughs> those are just awful. Uh, I guess my parents didn't really allow me in them either, and now I know why. I was in them. I was swimming in those things. <laughs> At the time of writing, the USSR had collapsed less than a decade prior, so internal records had only recently become available, and not all of them had been studied yet. So again, this was 1998. So. Mm-hmm. USSR collapsed, what, 1991, was it? Uh, I believe so. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, so only seven years of study of the, uh, well, maybe maybe even shorter, depending on like how long after the collapse those records came out. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, that, that's the thing I was texting with um, my cousin about was um, she was asking about the book. She like read the synopsis and thought it sounded interesting. And 
was wondering if anything sounded out of date because it was written, you know, quite a bit of time ago. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, this is like actually the main thing that I think would be worth updating like this, this and like the advent of Google and Facebook. Yeah. Um, would be two really good additions, like updated scholarship on Soviet internal records and, uh, yeah. Um, computer surveillance basically. So, yeah, Scott says he is not an archival researcher, so he would not have been able to do that work himself, given the time. Um, but based on casual reading of the archival records, he noticed that collectivization failed in nearly every one of its aims, despite the level of effort, material, and research put into it. Um, what did succeed was mainly due to traditional statecraft. And uh, this is direct quoting... The state managed to get its hands on enough grain to push rapid industrialization, even while contending with staggering inefficiencies, stagnant yields, and ecological devastation. The state also managed, at great human cost, to eliminate the social basis of organized public opposition from the rural population. On the other hand, the state's capacity for realizing its vision of large, productive, efficient, scientifically advanced farms growing high-quality products for the market was virtually nil. I kind of wish he went into a little more detail on that as well like uh yeah it's not totally clear to me like why like what the specific reasons are that they failed but i i guess he does say in, in a couple of places that like there are other um works that cover that specific topic better than he does or can right no i agree i, I feel like it's kind of a two-dimensional rendering there i i i would i would i'm curious at least to know to know he could have flushed that out. Right. Um, so he also notes that the Kolkazi had the appearance of modern agriculture, but not the substance of it. And um, this is where he points out that like, while they were mechanized and managed, uh, they were still staffed by serfs who would work very slowly, drag their feet, go canny, etc. And uh, they were run by largely clueless managers with little reason to meet the their subjects halfway um, on like their quotas and, and stuff like that. Another thing that I thought about relating to that is like what, what sort of relationship these people had and like the living arrangements, like I'm looking at the map and it, what is your impression? Do you feel like those officials lived on site? I don't know. I didn't think of that actually. Let me see if I can open that up real quick, but I, I had a hard time reading that map to be honest. Yeah. Everything was very small. And just kind of makes me go a little cross-eyed, yeah. you know? It's just a bunch of boxes. <laughs> right. I mean, I would imagine that if they did live on site, well, I don't know. You know, I could see either way. Like, they either get, like, a nicer apartment or they get exactly the same one. And maybe they resent that even. Right. It just seems like that relationship would be pretty awkward. I mean, these are not massive communities. It does say there are two and three story houses. Yeah. Yeah, they probably did live there. Although, hmm. Okay, so old village, that's residential, right? Two and three story houses, that's residential. I think that's actually oh, and hotel. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's where the administrators stayed. Oh, I missed that. Huh. Yeah, number three. Oh, I see it. Yep. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah. Museums. I'm imagining it's just like a, you know, pedestal and it's got like a potato on it. <laughs> <laughs> this is us. 
Okay, any last thoughts about uh, the collectivization? Because now he gets into the more general stuff going forward. No, no, I don't think so. I do, uh, I think I want to try and look at some of his sources um, after this series is over and get into some more detail on like what the exact failures of the collective farms were. I think that would be really interesting. I mean, he seems pretty satisfied with what he read. So yeah, I'm sure they're good. The next section is state landscapes of control and appropriation. So Scott now attempts to draw up a general outline of the institutional logic of authoritarian high modernism, as he puts it. He admits that the practice of bulldozing and rebuilding from the ground up, uh, which we saw with, you know, Hausman, uh, Brasilia, these collective farms, and a few other examples. Um, it does work in some cases, but in others it's catastrophic. And so he says he'll return to this point later in the book and try and figure out why. But for now, uh, he says uh, there were two overarching goals for collectivization, both of which we've talked about. Short term, to produce enough grain to feed a growing proletariat in order to affect rapid industrialization. And two, long term, to eliminate the main source of resistance to the growing Bolshevik state by taking away their basis of power. And so each time the state up their demands for grain, which was a necessity for industrialization, they would meet ever stiffening resistance. I think he put it as like each turn of the screw elicited more resistance. I thought that was right. a nice way to put it. Yeah. So the d- dispersion, diversity, and opacity of the peasants as a class gave them a serious advantage in putting up a resistance to forced expropriation, which meant that overcoming that would require brutal violence, uh, which did happen. And Scott says that collectivization was a case of the, quote, newest state, meaning the, quote, oldest class, and attempting to remake it into some reasonable facsimile of a proletariat. Which I think that's... That's poetic. Yeah, yeah. And I think this is when I really started thinking about how like their goal was to like proletarianize everyone. Mm-hmm. So Scott then talks about the general principles behind authoritarian high modernism. While high modernism on its own is just an ideological preference, when it's given the power of authority by a state, the preferences are able to be imposed on people. And, and Scott doesn't use these words at all, but the way I put it was uh, it just so happens that the requirements to impose high modernist ideology on a population are exactly the same as the requirements to impose a class system on one. So you have to do all the same, like creating a synoptic understanding of people trying to reshape them to your synoptic understanding and, you know, achieving those specific goals and all this requires you know, the threat or act of force. Right. But as Scott mentioned before, there is between those two situations, there's a considerable difference in scale and ambition, Um, which maybe has with like U S dominance of the world. There's maybe not such a huge difference in scale and ambition between high modernism and a class system. Right. Because I think the main point of the U S domination of the world is the class system part i don't really see many you know any like high modernist ideal do you no 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 i agree with you there's the you know pretense of spreading democracy but you know that's not yeah i mean that gets back into my whole (laughs) was Lenin full of shit or not you know 
Yeah. You can just set that aside and look at what what's what are we actually dealing with? Yeah, I guess if he were cynical, it would he would resemble more of the US situation. Right. And like you know, his I don't think any of his like private writings are like, you know, internal memos of like the US state <laughs> where it's like we got to take our power back and blah 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 all that kind of shit, you know. Yeah. I don't know if you remember this, but in like 2004, 2005 or so, um, Democracy Now! talked about this story with uh, General Wesley Clark, who mentioned the U.S. had plans to start wars with seven countries in five years or something like that. And it was, you know, Iraq, Iran, uh, Syria, Libya, Lebanon. And Sudan, I think. I don't know if that was even seven, but those are the ones that I remember. No, I don't remember that. But they basically just had like straight up imperialist plans for just bombing places. <laughs> it's crazy. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, those are just sitting in somebody's desk drawer. Just <laughs> if circumstances arise, to just pull them out and they're ready to go. Yeah. Scott creates a table here. This table is not going to be very easy to talk about, obviously, on here. So, right. Um, if you want to see the table, I have posted it in the notes doc, which will be linked in the show description, so you can check the, check it out that way. Um, but it's basically like a table of legibility versus illegibility for different parts of human society. I actually like didn't I, I didn't really look very closely <laughs> at it myself because I was like, well, this isn't going to translate well to the podcast at all. <laughs> it's pretty good. I feel like this is something that could have been dropped even at the end of the book. It just it, yeah, it wraps everything up pretty nicely. I do really like that uh, description of the French education system. Oh yes, pulling out the pocket watch. Uh, do you want to do you want to read that bit? <laughs> yeah, let me see here. And the funny thing about that for me was like when they first started to introduce the this example, I thought they were going to go with some sort of Prussian school thing, but. Uh, the principles of standardization, central control, and synoptic legibility to the center could be applied to many other fields. Those noted in the accompanying table are only suggestive. If we were to apply them to education, for example, the most illegible educational system would be completely informal, non-standardized instruction determined entirely by local mutuality. The most legible educational system would resemble the Hippolyte Taine's description of French, French education in the 19th century when, quote, the minister of education pride himself just by looking at his watch, which page of Virgil all the schoolboys of the empire were annotating at that exact moment, unquote. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> it's, just, it just gives me the creeps. Yeah. <laughs> it's disgusting. <laughs> Absolutely psycho. <laughs> it is, man. Like, who is this guy? It rocks. You know he has, like, a <laughs> filthy smile on his face while he's doing it. So he does elaborate that these things in reality are more of a, you know, a continuum or a spectrum than just a dichotomy. So he gives the example of, of control of land, which, um, you know, the least legible control of land would be something like the open field system with more legible systems being like individual allotments and the most being private property, basically. Mm -hmm. 
So yeah, again, check out the table in the notes. Um, yes, this is just a ploy to get you to look at the notes that I've taken. <laughs> you caught me. <laughs> Bro, Rose, the power! We're at the last part of this chapter here. And this section is called The Limits of Authoritarian High Modernism. And so Scott continues to the conditions that allow authoritarian high modernist projects to succeed or fail. Examples of successful projects that he names are space exploration, the planning of transportation networks, flood control, airplane manufacturing, control of epidemics, and control of pollution. I thought some of those are pretty interesting. I wouldn't think of airplane manufacturing as high modernist. Yeah, that one stuck out. Control of epidemics, though, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, those are the two that stuck out for me. I was surprised with airplane manufacturing and, and just being apropos the ep- epidemic, yeah. Control of pollution, I don't even know what he's talking about. Where has that ever happened? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess theoretically it, theoretically it could be. Banning CFCs from hairsprays, I think that's it. <laughs> yeah, that's the one thing. And yeah, I guess the planning of transportation networks is a really good example. You've read the whole book, right? Does he go into that at all? I'm um, trying to think. No, because Nick's no, I don't think he does. I don't remember anything. About that. I mean, I'm sure if he went into every example that he could think of, the book would just be a, you know, 5,000 pages or whatever, but yeah, and it's already a beast. I think that would be a really interesting one to go into. Yeah, it would. It would. Especially in the U S context, like the, the interstate system, you know? Yeah. And I mean, they kind of almost, I mean, if we were to do like high speed rail or something, they would almost have that blank uh, slate that they, the high modernists seem to really like, you know, mm-hmm. they, they wouldn't have to uh, coordinate it with much because everything's so old and outdated. Yeah. So the collective farms in particular were able to produce the major grains. However, they were notably inefficient at producing anything else such as fruits, vegetables, small livestock, eggs, dairy products, and flowers. And as I covered in a previous episode, tea which was produced in tremendous quality and abysmal quality. Did I say quantity or quality the first time? That I meant to say quantity. Quantity and bad quality. Yeah. Yeah, they had these huge tea plantations um, that were harvested by machines, whereas like most tea is harvested by hand. You pick two leaves in a bud or one leaf in one bud. But they just had these like it was basically like a like an electric trimmer, <laughs> the equivalent of that for a farm. So they just like trimmed the the tops of the uh, shrubs off, and uh, yeah, you'd get a tea that's just full of stems. <laughs> Very bad stuff. But they produced a lot of it. Yeah, they like satisfied. I think it was like eighty or ninety percent of the demand for tea domestically. So. And so the other agricultural products came mostly from the small private plots of the Kolkazi, even when collectivization was at its apex. So um, as a pair of illustrative examples, Scott chooses wheat, which he calls a proletarian crop, versus red raspberries, which he thinks of as the ultimate petty bourgeois crop. So wheat can be grown well enough on a large scale with mechanized agriculture, you can plant it and don't have to do much to it until harvest. And if you do like handle it or whatever, it won't take much damage. Um, and then the harvest can be done with a combine and the processing can be done with uh, with machinery as well. And it's also very amenable to storage. You can store it for a very long time. 
But in contrast, raspberries have very particular soil needs. They need to be pruned yearly, takes multiple harvests by hand. And once you pick them, they last only a few days at best or a few hours at worst. And they're easily destroyed by handling them too roughly. And successful raspberry production also requires particular attention and local knowledge slash, I don't know why he didn't use this word, but metis, which uh, makes it a poor candidate for centralized control. Have you finished the book? No, I, I'm doing this as I go. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you don't know that metis comes in later? Uh, he mentioned it in the last chapter. Oh, did he earlier? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Um, okay. But I'm surprised he didn't mention it here too because he already uh, defined it earlier. Mm-hmm. Do you know? Do you know anything about how raspberries grow? Because I've I know blackberries, at least the wild ones, are like covered absolutely covered in thorns, and they're like the worst fucking thorns. Mm-hmm. So it's really really hard work to pick blackberries. I don't know if raspberries are the same thing. Yeah, I don't know about that part. I I know a little bit about like the soil needs, which are. Pretty particular mm-hmm. for for berries usually, but like he, like he mentions, there this this stuff's not easy to grow. But yeah, I think I think bringing up tea is the way you described it fits in here nicely. Yeah, yeah. If you haven't listened to that episode, go check it out. It's the last one that uh, my former ho- co-host Chris was on. So okay, and we're planning to in the future do one on the. Chinese tea industry, which is a much better tea industry. <laughs> nice. But yeah, the part about raspberries being delicate, I know like they're definitely even more delicate than blackberries, which like I picked enough blackberries to fill like one of those grocery store containers, you know? <laughs> and it was so hard not to destroy the berries and they're even sturdier than raspberries are. So I can't imagine having to pick raspberries that, it sounds completely insane. Yeah, they are they are delicate. I mean, just like to eat them, they almost just crumble up in your hands. Yeah, yeah. Very fragile. Definitely. The the thing about them only lasting a few days was crazy to me though. I, I put in a comment, just dry it, pickle it, candy it, or jelly it, you fucking psychos. I have blackberry jam that I made <laughs> from wild berries last summer and it's still good to eat. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Like, who's going to rustle with that for... Who's going to go through all that work for two days? Man, what a nightmare. Yeah. Well, a lot of us, apparently, since... Yeah. <laughs> get most of them at the grocery store when they're fresh. Yeah. Well, that's all I have. Um, do you have any final thoughts? Um, I think I kind of said at the beginning, I I feel like the, this is Stalin's time to shine. Um, I didn't <laughs> know much about collectivization. Yeah, same. Before before reading this chapter, and um, I don't know. I, I I have a real soft spot. The more I read, the more I have a soft. And it doesn't matter what the history is. I have a soft spot in my heart for the Russian people. Mm-hmm. They just they just can't seem to catch a break. Yeah, and even up until today, it just keeps it just keeps going, man. It seems like they caught a break for like nine months between the revolution and right. <laughs> the takeover of the Bolsheviks. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It was it was good through that summer. February to October was okay. Um, all right. Well, uh walk in. Thank you so much for coming on and talking about this with me. You're welcome, Ryan. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, definitely. 
Do you have anything you want to plug? No, no, just uh, just an old guy that likes to read books. <laughs> Don't have anything out there online. <laughs> All right, man. Well, uh, yeah, thanks again for coming on, and uh, thanks everyone for listening. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out our other episodes on every podcast platform, including Spotify and YouTube. We would love it if you left a nice review on iTunes, which helps people get the show in their recommendations, or tell your friends if you're cool enough to have those. We have a low-key merch shop at Teespring with some cool shirt designs. I know it's not really good to use them, but until there's significant interest in merch, it would be pretty impractical to do a run of merch from a proper printer. So if people are interested, let us know. You can follow us on Twitter at NeighborsciPod. If you want to support the show and help pay our producer, we have a Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash NeighborScience. And our producer for some of our episodes is Casino Socks. You can check out his music at SoundCloud.com slash Casino Socks. And finally, you can check out our website, NeighborsciencePodcast.com which has tags on all our episodes. So if you're looking for a particular subject, it's much easier to find on there than just scrolling through the entire list of episodes in your